The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. If you are just tuning in, we encourage you to go back and listen from episode one. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Direct Appeal. I can fix this. We would fight. We'd break up. We'd get back together. I gave as good as I got. He'd hook up with somebody. I'd hook up with somebody. It was volatile. Next thing you know, he gets arrested. If I don't agree to this, they're going to come after me. They would ensure that he would do time. But I think deep down, he did know that he put me in a very, very difficult situation. That almost ended us. He begins going to Atlantic City. Eventually, the wedding money is gone. The baby's money is gone. Things went precipitously downhill from there to the point where before my second child is born, I begin having an extramarital affair about a month before I'm due. And I did leave, but I went back. I went back that same night. If you're there, when I get home, I'm going to kill you. This is episode three, The Closing. Okay, last episode on direct appeal, we covered Melanie and Bill's relationship and we took a real in-depth look. And what we came to was this big fight that Melanie says she and Bill had. She says that this is the fight where she knew she should have left. And I'm going to let her describe this fight in the aftermath. Had I left, it could have changed the trajectory. I mean, necessarily it would have changed the trajectory of our lives and where we both went from there. Whether you believe in the butterfly effect or, you know, whatever, it would have changed things. And maybe, maybe he would still be here. So I, I live with that a lot in terms of feeling guilty for that, that I didn't have the strength. I had the strength to leave because I was terrified in that moment, but I didn't have the strength to stay gone. And I, I regret that deeply. You know, after that fight, the big one, I, I really kind of resented it. And in my head, I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm not going to take this anymore. At this time, it's like, I don't know, March or early April of 2002. And we moved to a larger place because we had been in a one-bedroom, three-floor walk-up. So everybody was living in one bedroom. It was nothing nice. He wanted me to take a different job, and I wouldn't. And any time the kids got up and they were sick or they woke up in the night, it was always my fault because I had my children in daycare because I chose to work the job that I did. Just things that, like, the logic is is hard to follow because, okay, if I worked a different job, still, the kids have to go to daycare. When am I going to sleep? You know, when are you going to sleep? There were arguments. There was a dryer sheet incident before the infamous dryer sheet incident where he tried to shove the dryer sheet in my mouth, in my face. And there were a couple of times that he put his hands around my throat and held me where he was screaming at me. You know, and there I am, convincing myself choking is not hitting. And it's when I look back at it now, it's absolutely inconceivable that I was so asleep. That's what I liken it to, um, just not being able to, to wake up and and come out of this, I don't want to say stupor, but this is the state that I was in. And I just, at this point, I wanted 
piece. Also, Atlantic City trips started to increase again during this time. At one point, he even took a second full-time job because he needed to make back some of the, the money that he had lost. And he was actually, his job at NJIT was so flexible, he was actually able to do that, go work another full-time job while he's supposed to be doing this one. Neither employer was particularly pleased with it, and it didn't last for long. I would go to the grocery store, and he would accuse me of running away, wanting to get away from him. Well, no, dude, I work full-time, and at some point somebody's got to go food shopping, and you're not doing it. So, you know, the diapers aren't buying themselves. I'll never forget walking down the aisle in the A&P, my cell phone ringing, and I pick it up. All I hear are my children crying. He doesn't say a word. He just lets me hear my babies crying. And hangs up the phone. Basically, that's him telling me without telling me, see, your children are home, and you're not taking care of them, and this is what I'm listening to, and get home. Anytime I went out, it got to the point where I took the children with me everywhere because I couldn't trust him to pay attention, and I certainly didn't want to hear that phone ringing and hear kids screaming in the background. It was just easier. What she talks about sounds very similar to other victims of domestic abuse. Right. I should have left. I didn't think it was that bad. It does. Uh, I should point out, though, that there has never been, she never reported any type of incident, which we know is not the case. But so what she's talking about is from Melanie's point of view, and it could be the truth, but it's not verified. Has anyone corroborated it? Um, Family, friends? She had a family friend. It was either her mother or it was her friend, Celine, who corroborated one of the times being out with Melanie and the phone rang and they heard the children crying. So that story um, was true, at least on one occasion. No one else was able to corroborate any type of physical violence. I'm wondering if anyone she worked with ever saw any signs of abuse or, you know, if there's any other way to sort of Not that we know know of, Uh, really not that we know of. And I'm also wondering, so she clearly had her second baby by now, and I would assume they're both quite young, it sounds like. Are they close in age? Yes, they are. I believe they are two years apart in age, give or take a few months, but yeah. And so they moved from a one-bedroom apartment in Woodbridge to a bigger apartment, a bigger townhome? Yes, to the townhouse where they last resided. This was their last residence before they- was supposedly- killed. Well, yeah, we'll get to <laughs> Sorry. that. But no, that's okay. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, yeah, th- but that's true. Yeah. This, what, this was the last known residence before they closed on their house, which they never moved to together. Got it. So Melanie's describing, obviously, not a content marriage, but she's staying, right? She's staying in this relationship. And all the while, she's also saying that they are still working towards a common goal. Melanie had talked earlier about having this goal. She and Bill had the dream of a house, you know, the children, and and they're still going towards that. And and Bill in particular, as Melanie describes, I know that she, she cared about it, but I think it was a, a very big priority for Bill, as she describes it. The affair is still going on, though. She's having with the doctor. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, so we're going to hear a little bit about the concerns from her her boyfriend um, at the time about her looking at houses with Bill. But yeah, no, the affair was still very much going on. But at the same time, they are still looking at houses. Bill very actively looking at. So I think Melanie talks a little bit about that. We had been renting from the time we got married to the time we had our second child. So at that point, we lose the one bedroom 
and we went and rented a three-bedroom, two-and-a-half bath townhome. Plenty of room. But the aspiration was always to get a house. And for him, bigger was better. That was always kind of a constant thing. It was a goal. It was something that we talked about for years. His sister is a real estate agent, and so she allowed him to gain access to the MLS service with her password. And there, he would just sit there, sometimes days at a time, and just scroll through and look at listings and look at listings. It, it became somewhat of an obsession. We had another huge fight. About six months before we did buy our house, there was another one he wanted to purchase. And it was absolutely financially impossible. There was just no way. McMansion Plus, it was like 4,000 square feet. The home was beautiful, but it was just something that was so much that we didn't need. And finally, I put my foot down and I said, we're not doing this. And, you know, that, that led to a whole other argument. So they are actively house hunting. Bill is looking for houses. Melanie is fine with it. From what she describes, you know, she wasn't particularly jazzed about a new house because I don't think she was jazzed at all or in general, but she was okay with it. And they eventually found a house. And this was the house which they were, this is the house they actually purchased. And this was in Warren County. And Melanie describes it, and maybe later we even hear it, but she describes this as the big house. Um, It was on, I think, something like two acres of land. So it had, you know, it was sizable. It had area for their kids to play. It also had, I think, a little bit more privacy. And, you know, I I think for them, this was, or, or for Bill, she thought this was kind of the dream house. She did explain that this house was beyond their means. It was based on their salaries. It was a little bit out of their range. So financing was a problem. So I have to say that they found this house and they intended to close on it, but there was the stress of the financing ahead of time. And in fact, the financing for this house did not come through until the day of the closing. They weren't even sure they were going to close on this house. And Melanie will describe it, but she described it to me as, you know, I wasn't excited about it. I didn't really care. But then I thought, actually, if we close on this house, it's a good way to tie up our money in an investment. And, you know, she says so that Bill can't spend it. But in general, it is, you know, it's an investment. It's money tied up that they can't. This might be jumping ahead just a bit, but the last time Bill was seen alive was the day prior to the closing? No, it was the day of the closing. The day of the closing. He was seen alive that day. Yes. He made phone calls. He spoke to people that day. So they they go to the... Well, let's hear about the closing. The date of the closing was, my goodness, it was the 28th of April. And we both got up early that day. I took the boys to daycare and Bill wanted to get a, you know, haircut, finish up some last minute work. And we had to go to the bank that morning. As of two days before, he had sent me an email saying that we didn't have our second mortgage as of yet. So this was, it was all very, very last He was back and forth. He was nervous, agitated at different points, no more so than than usual. He was stressed out about the financing, sure, but we had to travel to the attorney's office for the closing. And during that time, I was getting a bunch of calls from the office, specifically Brad. He was frantic about me not closing on the house. And originally, I hadn't wanted to close either, but I did see an opportunity here to keep the money tied up in the house, at least, so that if nothing else, the investment would, would keep it safe. Bill wouldn't be able to get to it. 
go to Atlantic City with it or anything like that. And I had told Brad um, during the course of the day repeatedly that, you know, don't worry, I'll take care of it, meaning at some point I'm going to deal with all this. State's ultimate representation that me saying I'd take care of it meant that I was, you know, I don't know, going to do something sinister that doesn't even make sense. I meant at some point down the line I would take care of it in terms of I'm eventually going to extricate myself from this house, from this relationship, most likely, although, you know, that was a little less certain. But, you know, his thing with the closing of the house was I was getting deeper into the relationship, and I did not see it as that at all. I was seeing it as protecting the money and getting the money somewhere where he couldn't get to it. Undoing that to me would be a lot easier ultimately than losing another fifty or sixty thousand dollars. I mean, it, there was so much going into the closing about whether we did or didn't have certain financing. There was so much back and forth with this that it, at this point I was just it, enough. Let's just get it done. Let's just get it done. And and to Brad, somehow this seemed like something I was not going to be able to extricate myself from, which. Again, I didn't see it that way at all. You know, that, that night we got home like usual. We put the boys to bed and he was still on the computer and the phone, you know, doing his, his usual stuff. I see you shaking your head over there. <laughs> so I don't want to jump ahead too much, but Brad ends up testifying for the prosecution. Is that correct? He does, yes. Okay. So I'm assuming it's on record well, he testifies to the fact that Melanie said, I will deal with all of this. Yes. That does not look, I mean, the choice of wording, and she's very quick to defend that because, you know, she. I'm sure she knows that, you know, that we know that information as well, but she's very quick to say, I just meant I'm going to eventually leave. But- well, she's quick to defend it because she's dealt with the issue before, right? In trial, I mean, the prosecution's assertion was clearly that I'll take care of it means, you know, I'll... Yeah. Kill Bill, I guess. I just don't understand. If you plan on getting a divorce, it does not seem to me that things would go any smoother if you have real estate involved. I I could be mistaken there, but it seems to me that things you could make an easier cut financially. She's making it seem as if buying the house would make things easier, where I'm not sure that I agree with that. I don't think buying the house makes things easier at all. I don't necessarily think that she thought that ahead of time. And I don't know that she even believed that. I think that she did not have any immediate plans to divorce Bill. At least that is what she says. She has said that a a number of times. You know, one thing Brad did testify to later on is that they did not have any immediate plans to leave their spouses and that they never talked about it. They always referred to it as someday. So the buying of this house clearly freaked him out and it, you know it was making him nervous but again i don't think this came up before then i think this just triggered this you know him getting upset thinking we are going to do this someday right so why are you and the way she describes it seems as though Brad's calling her while she's in the car with Bill like on the way to the closing i just don't i don't think that would she be able to pick up that phone call and talk to Brad and be like hey i'm with my husband well i'm not but- sure she'd be able to do that <laughs> Uh, 
uh, but they did. They talked a lot. So yeah. their relationship was a lot. Uh, but remember also, they had an excuse. He was her boss, oh, right? Yep. So it's it's a work phone call. So they yep. could go back and forth. I, I hear what you're saying about the house, though. It does not. It, it definitely complicates things. I wonder if yeah. she just... So which way do we take this, right? I wonder if she just thought, well, it is what it is. At least it'll tie up the money. Later on, I can... You know, this is money we won't lose. We'll sell the house and I'll make some money. Fine. Yeah. We're not we're not going not gonna to start over from scratch. Or is this... I'll take care of it. Meaning, don't worry about it. I have a plan. The house will be mine anyway (laughs) in a few weeks. I don't know. You can form your own opinion. Yeah. One way the prosecution's arguing it and the other way it's not. But yeah, the the choice of wording is definitely problematic, I have to say. And the timing just doesn't look good for Melanie. The timing of, and I'm sure that'll come up once we talk a little bit more about what happens next, but the timing definitely seems to work against her a bit. I think it, no, oh, I think it definitely does. Yeah. Yeah. They close on the house. I mean, also realize closing on the house again, I, it was, I don't know how, we don't know how Bill felt about it. Um, he had supposedly called a friend and told a friend he was excited about the closing, but we don't know much more about it. We know what Melanie says. She wasn't that excited about it. She thought he was happy, but she describes him as still being sort of back and forth. And I, I assume it's because this, you know, the financing was so stressful. But regardless, they close on the house. It happens. The financing comes through. This is on April 28th, 2004, that they close on the house. So now what's happening is after they're going back to their house and... They're moving soon, um, so they have... When are they planning on moving? So they weren't planning on moving immediately. They had some type of agreement. The people who own the house needed to keep occupancy, and I think it was for a couple of extra days. So they're still in the process of packing their house, but as Melanie will describe, they have stuff everywhere. You know you know what it's like to move, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this, uh, this description of what we're going to get into next is Melanie's version of what happened on this night. And this is the significant night, the night of April... April, it goes the night of April 28th into the early morning of April 29th. And Melanie's going to detail this and describe this as the last time she sees Bill. And no one else will ever see Bill again. She's the last one to see Bill alive, as far as we know. As far as we know. You know, we put the kids to bed, the usual stuff. And he was drinking wine. I even had a glass. I fell asleep on the couch and that used to make him insane. But we both had fallen asleep on the couch. About two, three in the morning, we wake up. I can't remember who woke up first, me or him. But anyway, I started to, to tidy up a little bit. And I said to him, you know, that it must it must feel really good now that he finally realized that dream of having a home. I mean, it was easy for me to be... I want to say nonchalant about it. I grew up in a in a nice neighborhood, in a nice home. And that was something that kind of eluded him a bit. So this was really important to him. And that's when he told me that he wasn't happy. He had settled for the house. We'd have been better off in Virginia, which is where he had wanted to move. But because I couldn't bear to leave the state or my parents, we now were stuck with this house that wasn't worth the money we paid for it. And it wasn't what he wanted. Like a lot of our arguments, it kind of ebbed and flowed back and forth, you know. 
we'd raise our voices, things got quiet. Ultimately, he saw me putting away the laundry, and he noticed a dryer sheet that was sticking out of the sleeve of one of the baby shirts. And this just set him off. It wasn't the first time this had happened. To him, dryer sheets somehow represented laziness, like I should be standing there with the liquid fabric softener waiting to go. Asked me how, why, I, I don't know, but this was a thing of his. And particularly the fact that it was sticking out of the baby's laundry was the, the tipping point. So now he's, he's really yelling and criticizing my ability to be a parent and everything else. Now the baby has woken up and wandered out into the landing on the second floor where we were at this point and told me that I had made the baby a mama's boy. And at this point during the altercation, I forget what got said or how, at what point he basically pushed me up against the bathroom door and stuffed the dryer sheet in my mouth and slapped me across the face hard. And that was the first time that he had struck me. It wasn't the first time he put his hands around my throat or stuffed a dryer sheet even in my mouth. But to me, I had always managed to convince myself that choking or anything else wasn't abuse, like he wasn't beating me. Hitting me in front of my child was was my tipping point. At this point, I grabbed the baby who is now, he's crying, I'm crying. I lock us in the bathroom, and now my husband is going back and forth, upstairs, downstairs. He's storming around. He's saying he's leaving. You know, and it's funny because the prosecution mocked the idea that he would say he was leaving and he wasn't coming back. But the jury never got to hear that he did the same exact thing to his first wife, and that's actually how he left his first wife. So for me to hear him saying all these things, it's not like this was out of the realm of possibility for him. And of course, he would have been back. Of course he would have been back. That's that's why I ended up getting the temporary restraining order, because like Bill so often did, he'd say one thing and, and do another. He was erroneously called Mr. 360 by a lot of people, but meaning Mr. 180. But he, that was something he did. He would say one thing and then ultimately end up doing another. Anyway, he was he was leaving, good luck paying for the house by myself. I could tell the kids why they didn't have a father. Just the, the usual, unfortunately, the usual histrionics that would come from one of these bigger fights. And up downstairs, I basically assumed at this point he was packing and taking things with him because we were getting ready to move like that weekend. So everything was out. Everything was getting organized. He stopped by the bathroom door a couple of times to make fun of me, to mock my crying. As soon as I heard the front door close and his car start, I got up to get the hell out of there. Where's the other child at this Sleeping. Point? She says her other um, child could sleep through anything. He's one of those. So it sounds like this was a pretty loud fight. Anyone hear any sort of yelling or door slamming? Or I'm ah. assuming they interviewed neighbors. Good question. They did interview neighbors. And one neighbor, we will actually cover in, in some depth later, did recall hearing a fight. She could not recall the exact day because the interview didn't happen until weeks later, maybe even, maybe, yes, maybe even a month later. But she did recall hearing a fight. They probably fought quite often, though, it sounds like. 
sounds like, but we don't know. But this specific one, and later on I'm going to read you her affidavit because she gave one. And she recalls hearing a fight. She recalls it being around that time period. She And she was their neighbor like behind diagonal. Okay. She recalls it happening around 5 a.m. And she recalls hearing a woman yelling um, something about, well, we've been together five years. Now, I asked Melanie about that. She says, I don't know if that's exactly what I said, but we had been married five years at that point. So maybe, uh, you know, maybe yeah. that's one of the things that I said. So okay. we do have a little bit of support. Uh, remember, they don't inv- they don't investigate Melanie right away, which we'll cover in the investigation. But yeah, so, okay. Something very interesting. So he always wanted to move to Virginia, it sounds like. It came up a few times and that's where his body ultimately was found. Yes. Coincidence? I mean. <laughs> I know. Uh, this is a thing. He did. He wanted to move to Virginia. So is that Melanie saying, well, here, now you're in Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, it's it's very interesting. I, I think it is as well. I mean, the prosecution would probably argue that that was the attempt for her, you know, maybe or maybe that's where she knew because they had been to Virginia as a good place to dispose or separate herself or put him somewhere he's connected to. I'm not sure. Yeah. But- Yeah, Virginia, uh, apparently, and we don't know this for a fact, though. Remember that. She says that Bill, that was the goal. He would have preferred to move to Virginia. He had spent time there when he was in the Navy. He had friends there. He liked Virginia. He also liked the fact that you could get more for your money. Now, Melanie says, you know, no, she wasn't moving. She's a a Jersey girl. Uh, Our family's from Jersey. Obviously, her her boyfriend, her lover is from Jersey. And there was absolutely no way she was moving. Did Bill have family in Virginia or just those friends? He didn't have family. No, in Virginia, just the friends that were there (laughs) that I know of. Sorry. Um, But... So that's the the idea here, or that's what she says. What do you think about the fight? What do you think? Are there any other aspects of the fight that sound? I mean, the dryer sheet thing, uh, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know him, but it sounds like you'd have to be pretty, um, pretty anal to be annoyed about a dryer sheet versus fabric softener. But then again, people have their sticks. Who knows? Um it doesn't make sense to me why you just closed on a house and you're going to, why he would pick such a big fight and be so angry. I, I don't know. I don't right, know. right. Well, I mean, the prosecution is going to argue uh, later on that there was no such fight. This is the first of Melanie's stories to attempt to cover up her crime. This is where this is, this is where, where it starts. This is where it starts. This is where her story starts. Got it. And so... Um, well, here, I'm assuming what the prosecution's theory is, their theory oh, sure, is, yeah. of course, that there was no fight. And no fight. during that time, she was actually murdering her husband, exactly. I would imagine. That's okay. going to be the theory yep. that we're mm-hmm. going to see. And they'll argue um, that her actions over the next several days were an attempt to... Uh, to develop this cover story that they had a fight. Uh, so let's hear about, let's hear what Melanie says she did the next day. When he first left, oh, I figured he could have been anywhere. He could have been in Atlantic City. He could have gone to work. He could have gone to his sister's. He could, he could legit have gone anywhere at that point. That morning, I had talked to Brad Miller. He had called in a prescription for Xanax for me because he could hear how absolutely insane I was at that point. I just, I couldn't, I was so upset. I got the boys dressed and I brought them to daycare because I, I needed to ask the manager, what do I have to do to make sure he can't come and get them? 
what do I have to do to make sure he can't pick them up? And she told me a temporary restraining order, court order. So I called work, I called out of work, and I talked to a couple of attorneys, and one of them told me how to go ahead and go to the county courthouse to get a, a temporary restraining order. So I attempted to do that. I stood in line for, like, what seemed forever. I canceled the boy's speech therapy that night. I didn't want to bump into him there because if he figured he knew I was going to be there, you know, the thing was, he absolutely would have been back. It was just when he would have been back. That was the question. And I needed to do everything I possibly could between then and whatever time he showed back up in order to basically get get things moving. This was it. I had made the mistake of going back once before when I knew I should have stayed on and it wasn't going to happen again. It was no question. It was just going to be when. When and how. So he had taken the, the next couple of weeks off of work because of the move. So to me, him ultimately being gone during that period of time, it became a little concerning to me as time went on and on, but I, I wasn't out of, you know, it wasn't out of the realm of possibility. It wasn't like he had to be at work. He could have gone anywhere to chill out at that point. But most likely, knowing Bill, he would have gone off for a few days and then showed back up because he would try to take the kids. As a matter of fact, and I didn't ultimately end up even getting it that day. There was such a line that I knew I was going to have to go back the next day because it was getting to be closer to the time that he would be getting off work. And so had he gone into work and decided to just come home like he would have on a regular day, I wanted to make sure I had the boys out of there in time. You have 60 seconds remaining. Sometimes it was me, sometimes it was him, but he got off work before I did, typically. So he had the first opportunity to go and get them, and sometimes he would, so I didn't want to take that chance. And I knew going in and getting the restraining order that it wasn't, you know, the judge even said the next day, when I did get it, you know this is going to probably serve to antagonize him. And I said, yes, you know, I, I know it would. But again, ultimately, it wasn't about me and him. It was about him not being able to take the kids at that point. If it antagonized him as far as he and I went, then it, it is what it is. I see you shaking your head. Again, I'm watching <laughs> okay, Amy. She's so, shaking her head. You obviously have. I mean, she's just contradicting herself. He took off work. He's not going to work. I was afraid he was going to come home from work. He could have went to work. It just seems like, and it's possible she just really felt like that. Maybe he did take off and maybe she thought he wouldn't end up going. But it's just, it's very back and forth. Um, it just, I'm wondering, like, were these things, were these Things confirmed as far as she dropped off at the daycare. Yes. She missed speech therapy. Yes. Any chance there's surveillance at the pharmacy of her waiting in line and leaving? Or was uh, the prescription ever there? No. Uh, well, no, there's no surveillance of that. It was later on that a lot of this happened. The investigation didn't happen until much later and neither did the trial. So even when they went to go get surveillance of certain events that happened, it wasn't available anymore. Yeah. Um, some of this was, you you know, you were they were able to confirm. They didn't confirm all of it, but a, a lot of this was stuff that's not hard to, right? So yeah. she got a restraining order at some point. You can confirm that. She def, she dropped her kids off, right? She's opening, you'll hear, she's opening bank accounts. She's doing things. She's meeting with Brad. He testified to it. So there are a number of things in her timeline that we can confirm. But so she's saying that right away, you know, the next morning, this is at 5.36 a.m., she's making a plan. She's done. She's leaving this relationship. She is not making the mistake of going back again. So she goes to get a restraining order. 
the prosecution says this is the first attempt to cover this up. You know, that he, this is the first attempt to make Bill look bad. Um, this is, you know. Also, if, you know. It's real. For her, also for her to say, if I had killed my husband, why would I get a restraining order? Obviously, I didn't do it. So it's her sort of trying to paint a picture. She's painting a picture and she's trying to make the story a real one is what the prosecution would say. Melanie says, no, I was scared shitless of him and I needed a restraining order. I wanted to make sure that whether it's work or wherever he went, that he wasn't going to be able to come and pick up the kids. I wanted to keep the distance. Um, She also said, you know, it went on and on, making it sound like he was gone for a while. Um well, she's talking about, she is talking about the next several days uh, and okay. you know, that she's not just talking about that very day right there. She, okay. makes, she, she's, she goes back okay. and forth a little bit there. But but that day, again, she tried, uh, she says she tried, she didn't get the restraining order that day. I believe she got it the next day. She said the line was entirely too long. She stood there oh, for uh, hours and mm-hmm. it was just. So she called out of work for those two days. She did call out of work. Yeah. She called out of work for a couple of days to, she says, basically get her ducks in a row. She says she was also, uh, she said this is the first time she's taking Xanax because her nerves are, her nerves are, you know, shot. One of the benefits of having a doctor boyfriend. (laughs) Yeah, I would say so too, right? (laughs) Um, But are her nerves shot, Amy, because she's so upset about this fight or her nerves shot because she's just committed a crime? Yeah, and she needs to be able to appear calm. Yeah, right? right? She does need to be able to uh, appear calm. Had she had um, any history of anxiety or any other sort of... Um, Not that I know of. I don't believe there was a history of medications. Okay. I don't think there was a history of anxiety or depression or anything like that. So, okay. So let's accept, again, this is Melanie's account right now. So she gets a restraining order. She does something that... And she gets a restraining order on the 30th. Is that correct? Yes, it was the next day. So she attempts to, sorry, this day. She's going to talk about what she does this night. And this is the night of the 30th. Is that correct? I think now we're on, no, the the next day, the night of the 29th. Gotcha. Okay. So she attempts to get this restraining order. Let's, (laughs) (laughs) I think, you know, people might find the next moves a little bit odd. I wanted to make sure I got the kids out of there. I picked them up. I took them to my parents' house down in Barnegat. They lived in a gated community. And I knew the kids would be inaccessible to him there. And I spent some time there talking to my mom, talking to my parents. I decided to go back up to Middlesex County so I could go to court first thing in the morning the next day and start to get things in order. I checked into the Red Roof Inn. I took a little bit more than half the cash in our bank account. I left a note for his um, his friend and business partner, Jay, because Jay and his friends were supposed to be helping us move that weekend. And there was no way I was certainly not moving into this house with or without my husband. It didn't matter. Why wouldn't she just call him? Why'd she have to leave a note? Interestingly, yeah, maybe she didn't have his number, but she's leaving him a note, not not Bill. If, if, if Bill's... You know, Bill t- comes back, right? Or if Bill's taken off and this is his friend, wouldn't he contact his friend? Yeah, that seems kind of strange to me. Wouldn't you, don't tell me you don't have the number of the person who's going to help you move or that you couldn't get it somehow. They definitely Possibly had some not. mutual or maybe she has so much going on that, you know, this is not, just leave a note and go. I mean, I can't, I can't actually. So they had keys to her apartment? 
No, they didn't have keys. So why? Oh, she left a note on the door. On the door, right. Gotcha. Saying, like, not moving. Okay. At that point, went back to the hotel. I had taken, um, it was actually the first time I had taken the Xanax that Brad had prescribed for me. And I was, you know, on the phone talking to, to friends. I ended up, interestingly, having an $800 cell phone bill that month. If I did any of the things that the prosecution contends I did, I clearly did it with a headset strapped to me because I don't know how it would be humanly possible to talk that much and still do half the things the prosecution alleged I did. But anyway, I talked to a bunch of people, friends. I had a, a friend from high school who was an attorney trying to reach out to him to see if I could get a referral. But as the night's going on, I'm getting more and more agitated. In my mind, the reason he hasn't called or even tried to, to make contact to my knowledge is because clearly he would have done what I knew him to always do, which was go down and retreat to Atlantic City. And the more I sat there and stewed on it, the more I figured I have to I have to go down there and prove to myself that this is exactly he is exactly who I think he is. This would have sort of sealed the deal for me. Like, okay, we went through all of this and this is where you go. You go down to Atlantic City. So did Melanie find Bill's car? Next time on Direct Appeal. Did Melanie drive to Atlantic City to find Bill, or did she drive his car and park it there to make it look like Bill had taken off after their big fight? Later that week, Melanie says she is furniture shopping in Delaware, but the prosecution says she was actually disposing of Bill's body in Virginia. Direct Appeal is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga. The story arc was written by Megan Sachs. Music and underscore by Dessert Media. Recorded, mixed, and edited by Justin Crowell at JC Studios. Special thanks to Alan Tuckerman, whose work was integral to this production. If you have a tip, you can submit through our website or by emailing tips at directappealpodcast.com.